1: way to go sweden you never like to root against an american team but the fact that so many people were uh tells you that tells you all you need to know about the u.s women's national team at the world cup i'm sure you've heard by now and i doubt that you were watching they lost to sweden they were trying for their fourth in a row the success of that team Should have had people who have no interest in watching soccer and even less interest in watching women's soccer tuning in to watch the games. Megan Rapinoe had a chance to keep it alive with a penalty kick, and she almost kicked it out of the stadium. And that was the last we will be uh, seeing of her in a soccer match, uh, playing for the United States anyway. And she's the main reason why there were so many people rooting against her team. She wasn't the only one who decided to kneel during the national anthem or didn't sing during the national anthem or put her hand over her heart during the national anthem. Uh, There were a few others, but too many women on this team had spent too much time promoting too many causes and making too many anti-American comments. And even if a, a lot of people agreed with some of those comments, mixing politics with the games was a bad idea, almost always is. Rapinoe came out in support of Colin Kaepernick early on when he took the knee. He's the guy who wore a Fidel Castro T-shirt to a press conference where he claimed to be oppressed. That's a really good way to get about two-thirds of the country to dislike you. So, And so, so so is saying that you think men should be allowed to compete with and against women. And if you say it enough for long enough, it'll go from not liking you to rooting against you. And that's what happened to U.S. women's soccer. And there's a decent chance that as they get older, they're going to realize it could have been so much better for them. They could have had a lot more fun, maybe even done better in this uh, fourth year here if they had just shown more respect for the country they were representing. Well, when we come back, uh, Tim Murtaugh, Donald Trump's communications director in 2020, will talk about the media coverage of Trump and Biden this time around. And in our second half hour, uh, another sports story for you. This is one of those deals where it's about more than sports, I think. Tim Brando, who's been calling college football and basketball games for a long, long time on Fox, ESPN, and CBS, will talk about how college football has blown up, so much so that the Big Ten has 18 teams. Stick around. Hey, maybe you've noticed that Donald Trump has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, we're on indictment number three right now, waiting for number four. All of it's uh, newsworthy, of course, but so is news about, about uh, Joe Biden possibly making millions of dollars from China with the help of his son. Check out Fox News. You'll see coverage of both. Go on the website. You'll see coverage of both. Check out CNN and MSNBC. You'd never know Joe had a son. Um, there's nothing on either website. I just checked a few minutes ago. Tim Murtaugh knows all about this. He was Trump's communications director for the 2020 campaign. He's a columnist for The Washington Times, now also host of the Line Drive podcast. And he joins us now. Tim, how are you?
2: I'm doing well, John. Thank you very much. I appreciate you plugging the podcast. That's very helpful. Yeah, yeah. How's it going? Uh, it's going really well. We're um, we're only five episodes in, and already we're uh, hitting downloads at the rate uh, of, um, over a thousand downloads a month. And so that means that we're in the top 20% of all podcasts, um, after really we've only just gotten it off the ground. So, uh, it's really good. I think we've had some good guests. Our last, last guest last week was, uh, Miranda Devine, the great writer from the New it's York Post. One. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so that was pretty good. This week it'll be John Solomon of, of Just the News. Wow. So, we're looking forward to
1: it. Yeah, if you uh if you run into Miranda again, tell her I'd like to have her on the show here. I'm more than,
2: I'd love to I love that. I will do that. I will do that. So, so You can th- find the Line Drive podcast anywhere you get your your podcasts. I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: Okay. So, uh, this uh, none of this is uh, new to you that I just mentioned about the media. Um, we have 15 months to go. What will they have to get on Joe Biden before they have to start closing the gap on the on the critical coverage at least, you know, at least Asking some big questions or putting some pressure on?
2: Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take for much of the media, the uh, the corporate media outside of Fox and the New York Post and the Federalist and, and some of the good ones Newsmax. who are right of center, who actually are, you know, are doing their jobs. Yeah. I don't know what it's going to take for the rest of the media to actually go out there and cover what's staring them in the face. I mean, it's, it's outrageous that they look at, let's take Joe Biden and Ukraine, for example. Uh, at the time when his son was being paid $83,000 a month by this uh, Ukraine energy company, when he had no discernible expertise in that field, Biden was in charge of American policy on Ukraine, put, to, put in charge by President Obama. He was the point man on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And he publicly demanded... That a prosecutor be fired in Ukraine happens to be the prosecutor who was looking into Burisma, who was paying Hunter. And he publicly bragged about having gotten that prosecutor fired. All of that stuff, it's just uh, the, the circumstantial case against Joe Biden and Hunter Biden is overwhelming. And the media looks at it and even investigate, and they just say, well, there's no proof that that is connected. Yeah, there's they still- no. They just take it on faith that it's not connected, John. Yeah, it's
1: one thing for them to say that. And I and and you expect the Democrats, the, the people they put out front, you know, uh, from Congress and the usual people, to say well, there's no evidence, and anybody who you know listens to that is an idiot. But but the um, but for the media to not have more curiosity or not have at least some guilt <laughs> over the just seeing the difference between the coverage of the two is is stunning.
2: Yeah, it really is stunning. And I mean, think about all I left out one detail, one detail there that Devin Archer gave us filled in was that the discussion amongst the Burisma people was that they had to call D.C. That's what they said. We have to call D.C. to see about getting this prosecutor filed, fired. And then lo and behold, Joe Biden got the prosecutor fired. And the media knows all these things and they just decline to put it together. They just they just say, you know, there's no evidence that any of that is connected where Joe Biden actually did the very thing that the company wanted at the same time that that company was paying his son over a million dollars a year. None of the media is the least bit curious as to how how all that happened all at exactly the same time. It is really, really remarkable. So if you have this set of facts, John, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. If you have this set of facts and the fact that the media simply does not care, I don't know that we're ever going to get to a point where they really write about what the Biden corruption is really all about.
1: Yeah, I, I, I I keep thinking... That there's going to be something that's gonna to, gonna to actually make it impossible for them not to give it the coverage it deserves. I thought devin Archer showing up stupid me i thought I thought they would actually find that interesting or not worthy of uh, major coverage, and that it barely got on their air yeah
2: yeah and and you know so we have actually three things that corroborate everything that we have on the right have always believed about Joe Biden, that he is corrupt and that he participated in the scheme under which his son and others sold access to him to foreign businessmen. We all believe that's what happened. We have Hunter's laptop and 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 the contents of that that prove that Joe Biden was aware of all of this stuff. We have Devin Archer, who says that Joe Biden got on the phone at least 20 times with uh, Hunter Biden's business associates to demonstrate that Hunter could produce his father on demand. Selling the brand is what Devin Archer called it. Mm -hmm. And then we have another former business partner, Tony Bobolinsky, who says that he sat at the table physically with Joe Biden while these deals were constructed and discussed. That's three different sources that put Joe Biden in the middle of the scheme. Three! And no reporter on the in the mainstream seems to even care. it's It's astounding.
1: but just astounding. as important, it also uh, he's out there on multiple videos when asked about Hunter saying, "I had no uh, discussions with him whatsoever. And back in twenty twenty during the campaign, when he was asked about it, he would go off on a, don't, what are you bothering me for? Donald Trump's the guy you, got, you guys should be checking into. He's, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's the most corrupt president we've ever had. And uh, he, he just brushes it off. And, and now he's, he's, it's one thing to get away with it back then, but they have this, they have this proof of him lying and they're not even interested in that.
2: Yeah. I, I look I don't know what to tell you. I'm just as frustrated as you are yeah. in the media. They all know all these things and they and you know why? Because he's on their kid. They don't particularly love Joe Biden. It's not they had like have some sort of Fetish about Joe Biden the way that they did about Barack Obama, right. but Biden is on the team. He's a Democrat, and they're wearing the Democrat jerseys, and they're not—they're just not going to—they're not going to get involved in this. And they haven't—they haven't dead to rights on lies, just as uh, just as you mentioned. He says that he never once ever discussed his business uh, with his son. Now, the, of course, the White House has changed the language. Now, now yep. they say that he was never in business with his son. But if you also remember during one of those debates, he said no one from my family has ever gotten paid by interests in china well we know that's a lie we know that's a lie so he's if if none of this stuff amounts to anything why does joe biden habitually have to lie about it why keep lying about it if there's nothing to see do you that's what i don't understand do you see any
1: difference in the coverage from four years ago when you were involved
2: no they're doing it all over again They're, they're, they're doing it all over again they are here's another example of it Things were going, while Devin Archer was actually in the room testifying, things were going so poorly. For the interests of Joe Biden, that Dan Goldman, a congressman from New York, who's now the, he's the Adam Schiff of this, this news cycle. He was in the briefing there. He's a Democrat from New York and he has been designated by the Bidens as their, their point on their, their chief hatchet man. He was so bothered by what was going on inside that room that he stood up and went outside to talk to the cameras to try to get the spin underway while the interview was still going on. And he went outside and he told the cameras, listen, this is what Devin Archer just testified to. He said that what the Bidens were up to, what Hunter was up to, he was selling the illusion of access to his father. That's what Devin Archer just testified about. Mm -hmm. He was that Hunter was selling the illusion." Not actual access, just the illusion. And every liberal outlet, CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, the Associated Press, everybody went crazy and said Devin Archer testifies to, you know, it was the illusion of access. Not really the access, just the illusion. Turns out, now that we see the transcript, Devin Archer never said those words. Dan Goldman said those words in his question to Devin Archer. Archer never testified to anything like that. It's, yeah. it's astounding, astounding. So no, I don't have any hope that it's ever going to get better.
1: <laughs> now I got to ask you. You were we're talking to Tim uh, Murtaugh. He was is the former uh, communications director for the 2020 Trump campaign, but now uh, columnist at the Washington Times and host of the Line Drive podcast. Um, so you were involved in a campaign, and obviously as communications director, you had a role in getting the message out. I just I, I I I remember talking to you about this when you were on you were on weekly during the campaign for about the last year of the of the run, um, but I, I'm always fascinated to hear what you would what you might be thinking as someone who's been on the inside of this. What do you imagine is going on when all this stuff is happening and? The people in charge of getting the Biden message out or in charge of making sure that the bad news doesn't get out, what kind of day are they having like today or, what, what, or last week when Devin Archer was, was testifying? Are they, are, they, are they actively like calling people up and saying, hey, this, this is a nothing story. I sure hope you don't cover it.
2: Yeah, well, I think what they're doing, what they do is they enlist the people that they know that they can count on, which in the, in the, if you're a Democrat in the White House, that is. Uh, most of the press corps, I would say about eighty percent of the press corps, and they'll get on the phone and they'll conf- and have you know a little aside conversations with folks and say, listen, you know exactly what's going on here, and they will spin it individually to each one of these reporters, some of the major ones, of course. And then when they get a nugget, like they get somebody like Dan Goldman who's out there doing their dirty work, and Dan Goldman comes out and actually tells the media that Devin Archer testified to something that he did not in fact testify to, they will prep, they will have laid the ground work and say, hey, listen, you ought to to listen to what Dan Goldman has to say, because he's going to tell you what's going on in, in these rooms. And they're dealing with the press corps that wants to see the world exactly the same way that the Bidens do. And so they go along. And they take their word for it. And frankly, you know what? You know how many times these reporters, whether it's COVID or whether it's Hunter's laptop, whether it's the Russia collusion hoax, whether it's the bounties that Russia was allegedly paying yeah. uh, to insurgents to kill American troops—all of these things were lies and were proven to be uh, untrue. And not once has anyone in the mainstream media ever apologized for it and run a correction for it. The New York Times won a Pulitzer Prize their coverage of the russia collusion uh hoax which turned out to be completely untrue not only did the new york times not give their pulitzer prize back the pulitzer committee didn't even ask for it back none of them cared that it was true or untrue because it was hurting the right people that's their goal and so inside the biden it must i always say my friends and i in this in this industry always say my god how how easy must it be to be a democrat communications person because 80% of the people that you deal with are already on your team. So all they're really doing is just is is around is circling the wagon. Are they reading the
1: wagon- their, your press releases? Is that what they're doing? Basically?
2: Yeah, essentially. You know, when they when they call the New York Times and say, "Hey, we need some help here. We need you to, you know, promote what Dan Goldman has to say." It's easy.
1: So I, I, but it's, Tim, I, that's what I was that's what I that fascinates me. Is there somebody uh maybe uh someone who's was, you know, um, Similar, his, whose job was similar to the one you had, someone in the in the communications department, uh, in the message department, they actually blatantly call up uh, an editor at the one of the papers or, or a, uh, at the Washington Post, the New York Times, or someone at CNN and say, "Hey, this Dan Goldman stuff is really good. I sure hope you're going to get that on." Or, or well, how do they do it? How do they push sure. it?
2: Yeah, certainly there there would be be texts or phone calls absolutely. They know which they know which editors and which which major reporters are going to be the ones that they can they can tell to to see things their way and say hey, you know, do me a favor. We we'd really appreciate it if you'd write it this way or here's how we see things. And they and then they'll go ahead and just, you know, <clears throat> amplify what that is well what happens me give you a perfect if, sorry let me I, give you a perfect example let me give you a okay. perfect example yeah, go ahead. Yeah. in the in the laptop thing when hunter's hunter's laptop was coming around in october of 2020 mm-hmm. and the media was fishing around looking for an excuse not to write about it uh they crafted they they made up this idea that it was russian disinformation mm-hmm. and they got 51 different former members of the intelligence community to sign a letter the biden campaign did this tony tony blinken did this. The, the current secretary of state, he mm-hmm. did this. He got 51 people to sign a letter that said, oh, this is Russian disinformation. And they fed the letter to Politico. And Politico blew it up and said 51 intelligence chiefs say that this is all Russian disinformation. Everyone involved knew it was a lie. Every last one of them knew it was a lie. But Politico printed that letter and that gave every Media outlet under the sun—the perfect reason never to write about the laptop because it had been labeled Russian disinformation—and who wants any part of that? And that was three weeks That's before the, the that election. That was the yeah. entirety of the media. Uh, entirety of the media going along with a dirty trick and a lie planted by the Biden administration, Biden Biden campaign, mm-hmm. and they did it knowingly and purposely.
1: Well, were there times when you uh, or someone else involved with the Trump campaign would call some of those same people and either? protest that a story that that uh, would have been favorable to trump or a story that would refute some of the stuff that was being sold by the democrats what was the response would they hang up on you
2: yeah. no So listen we for the last two weeks of the campaign speaking to staying on the laptop again we yeah. had we had a press conference call every single day with, uh, for the last 13 days of the campaign. And we had uh, various members of Congress on the phone with us and all the press corps. We had Ted Cruz, for example, and Rand Paul, and Kevin McCarthy, and members of the Congress who used to be federal prosecutors, and all all sorts of credible, high-profile Republicans uh, from public life, elected Republicans. And we would get on the phone every single day with the entire press corps and one or more members of Congress every day for the last 13 days, and beg them, beseech them. You have to see the news value in this story. This isn't about naked pictures of Hunter and pictures of guns and cocaine. This is about the connection to his father. This is very serious. And I had reporters tell me privately, listen, we're just you're not going to get anybody to write this. We are not going to write this, first of all, because uh, they've already floated the idea that this is Russian disinformation. No one wants a part of a story when it's been labeled like that. And second, you're not going to get anybody to break away from the pack. No one wants to be the first one to break away because it's the cool kids club. and You don't get kicked out of the cool kids club. And I honestly got if you see the way the press corps operates, you just got to go around them. If you had to depend on the press corps, no Republican would ever get elected anywhere.
1: (laughs) Hey, Tim, I'm I'm out of time, but uh, we have 15 months to go. I'm sure we'll talk again and uh, we'll have plenty to talk about. Thanks for coming on. It's the Line Drive podcast.
2: Thank you very much. I appreciate it. it. always raises my blood pressure, John.
1: Thank you. <laughs> we'll be back. Well, we don't do sports here every day. When we do, we don't really do X's and O's. We do sports stories, issues that kind of intersect with politics and culture. And we have one of those stories, I think, now that intersects uh, with both going on. College football is on fire. Uh, if you remember the Big Ten, it looks like it's now the Big Eighteen. Tim Brando has been doing college football play-by-play for a long time, most recently for the Fox Network. He joins us now. Tim, thanks for coming on the show. John,
3: it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on.
1: So uh, we've never met, but we do have something in common. We both were friends with and worked with Bino Cook, the uh, the pope of college football. Well, what that it... is
3: a significant that is a significant bond, by right. the way, for two people that have not met. You're absolutely right.
1: (laughs) What would he be saying today, Tim? Unbelievable. (laughs) It's always about the money. You
3: knew that, Brando. (laughs) I told you. The one thing that all the universities have in common, an incessant need for more money. The athletic directors, the presidents, they talk about education. They talk about the student-athletes. But the one thing they're in business for is the money. And the more money they get, that's going to determine what we do in college football. It's unbelievable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's, uh, I thought Bino was on the end of the line. What about Notre Dame? What would be happen? What's going to happen with Notre Dame? I was going to get to well, that later. Notre,
3: but... no, Notre Dame's top material. We know that have the best home field advantage since the Kremlin. <laughs> but I still think they're going to remain an independent because their ego is too large to be a part of any conference.
1: <laughs> He's the best. That's a good one. So, so, uh, so, I, as I said, the, uh, the introducing you here, we actually do we actually have a Big Eighteen where the Big Ten used to be?
3: Oh, it'll be the Big Ten. They love that brand, oh, I know and that, they'll yeah. stay, they'll stay with it. Now, look, uh, Brett Yormark, the new uh, commissioner of the Big Twelve, who's been a tremendous mover and shaker, and I've really gotten the kick out of seeing how so many of the print media. Uh, have determined that uh, that you know television is to blame for all of this. That you know, uh, you know, where the evil, the evil empire is all things television. Yeah, but Brett Yomark has as much to do with the Pac-12's demise as anybody, and you know, that's just because he did his job. You know, they brought in this city slicker from New York that uh, knows his way around legally, and and also knows how to promote because he turned NASCAR into, you know, one of the great success stories of the, the, a decade ago in sports television. And then he winds up in the Big 12, a conference that was left for dead by many just a couple of years ago when Texas and Oklahoma left. And, no, he didn't replace Texas and Oklahoma. No one's going to – I mean, you were talking about two of the biggest brands in all of college football. But what he did do was supplant – uh, those two big brands with four very good ones. And he was proactive in going out and getting them uh, out of the group of five or the so-called group of five, the American Athletic Conference. You had Cincinnati, who was just in the college football playoff a couple of years ago. UCF, who should have been in uh, more than five years ago, with Scott Frost had an undefeated team. And the best they could do was get a trip to the Peach Bowl where they beat Auburn out of the SEC, and he picks up on top of that uh, a Houston team with all of that revenue coming out of Tillman Fertitta's pocket uh, to help bring Houston back into what would have been, um, you know, the old the old Southwest Conference when Bill Yeoman was there. Now it's you know it turned into the Big Eight, which turned into the Big Twelve when the Southwest Conference went away, and then BYU, who has an international following as you well know, with the Church of Latter Day Saints mm-hmm. and now, now, when you add Utah, people are talking about all the rivalries and traditions that could be going away. Listen, uh, with Utah, Arizona, and Arizona State coming into the Big 12 as well, uh, you know, one of the great rivalries uh, is is the Holy War between the Utes and BYU, and that will be a Big 12 game in the future. But I, I think he will change the name. I don't know to what, but I I, I really believe he wants to make. Uh, his mark and, and is continuing to do anything that he can to create more revenue streams so that that league, the big 12 can compete with the big kahunas, which right now are clearly the big 10 and the SEC financially.
1: So, but I mean, we, you and I have both been around a long time. I I understand the, the value of, of a conference when they get to be this large, when you start talking about 18 teams in one conference, Right. There, the uh, uh, to be in the Big Ten at one point was like being in, in an exclusive club. It was only ten colleges. They they had they went back a million years. They had these rivalries between each other, not just Michigan and Ohio State, but I mean, uh, um, oh yeah, Ohio State, and Michigan, but many others. H- oh, how yeah. can you keep that? How can you keep that flavor, that that uh, dynamic, when you start adding, when you start having t- uh, conferences that are bigger than the AFC and the NFC?
3: <laughs> well, the evolution of the game was something that, John, in my opinion, and, and Bino and I used to have many a debate about this, going all the way back uh, to the College Football Association, which was created in the aftermath of the lawsuit that was brought to the universities of Georgia and Oklahoma against the NCAA. You know, so oftentimes we hear people talking about, well, I liked it the way it used to be, you right. know, the grand old days. and I, And I hated it, okay, as a baby boomer growing up, Uh, In the in the born in the fifties and growing up in the sixties and seventies, I I was so upset with college football at the end of every year because every national title was mythical. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, certain teams just didn't play certain teams, and hell, that was true even in in conference play. Uh, The Southeastern Conference at one point was only playing five conference games. Now think about that, but it happened. You know, in the early seventies, that was true. You know, Georgia did not play Alabama. They, they didn't ever play Alabama. Auburn played both Alabama and Georgia. Nobody seemed to care, but it was always imbalanced. And my thoughts always were that college football was leaving a lot of money on the table by not streamlining the way it did its business from conference to conference in the regular season and by not having a true postseason where the best of the best would have access to an opportunity to play uh, for a national championship. And what's being left out in all of this, regardless of what's going on with with proud programs, by the way, that recently have been better than a lot of Big Ten teams, okay? Oregon and Washington have each been to the college football playoff since its creation in 2014, okay? And Oregon actually won a game, beat Florida State uh, en route to playing Ohio State and losing in 14. But, you know, Michigan's gotten there and lost both games. Ohio state hasn't won since the 2014 national championship been there, but not won there. These two programs, Oregon and Washington are elite at this stage, two great young coaches, Dan Lanning and uh, coach are really outstanding uh, coaches. So uh, you add that to UCLA and USC, who by the way has carried the financial water for the league, but they haven't done anything since the Bush push against Notre Dame. And, their loss to Texas, USC has been a non-factor in recent years. There's, They've had more of a reputation than they've had a quality team. Now, Lincoln Riley's turning it around, but they're not there yet. They lost to Tulane last year in the Cotton Bowl. So the evolution of the game was something I felt was needed a long, long time ago. In many ways, we're finally getting to the 21st century. And and frankly, you're going to have some growing pains. Uh, now, losing a league after it was in, in place for 108 years, uh, is, is is something that kind of blows you away. And I get that. But the reality is George Kliakoff and the people in the Pac-12, and particularly its presidents, did not care enough to save their own league. Had they cared enough, they would not have allowed the Big 12 to jumpstart them on two linear sports television deals with ESPN and Fox and leave themselves in a position of vulnerability where all they could muster was an Apple-centric digital deal that was incentive-based. So, no, television didn't kill the Pac-12. The Pac-12 had its own one-car accident off the interstate <laughs> and didn't do their jobs.
1: Well, here's the thing now. I, as I said, I, I don't do a lot of X's and O's here. Uh, I'm an old sports guy, but this is a, this is a non-sports <laughs> show. But I, yeah. I, I, th- we're, we're, this is the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about uh, when, it ta- when it comes to culture and how college football has, you know, the, the whole culture has changed. We're coming yep. up on the 60th anniversary of the 1963 Pitt team, which I remember as a kid. They went 9-1, and one, didn't go to a bowl game. A Bino could rattle off a number of future doctors, dentists, and lawyers on that <laughs> roster, including yep. Paul Martha, by the way, who became CEO of the Penguins. How much of college, not just because of what's happened in the last week, but just fairly recently, how much of college has been taken out of college football?
3: Oh, a good bit. A good bit. No, I, I'm with you there. But that was going to happen regardless, because the college game has been forever, okay, mm-hmm. a free developmental league for the National Football League. It's been that way forever. And at some point, the modern-day Internet athlete, John, was going to figure this thing out mm-hmm. and say, hey, hey, what about us, okay? Okay. Uh, The athlete, the student-athlete, so-called student-athlete, which, by the way, if I hear an administrator (laughs) use that term, you know, another time, I might regurgitate. Right. Okay, these these are players that know what their name and their image and likeness is worth, and they want that. Mm -hmm. And moving forward, uh, especially with the new college football playoff TV deal, which is about to be negotiated over the next year and will be put in place in 2026, they're going to want a piece of that pie, so it was only a matter of time before we had to look at the quote unquote student athlete as wait a minute a player first and foremost. Now look, when it comes to Division One athletes, they still outgraduate okay the populace of the of the school almost to you know almost a hundred percent the the graduation rate among stu- of, of students that participate in Division One college athletics. Is, is well over 25 to 30%, depending on which area of the country you're looking at, greater than those that actually enter school to, to, to quote-unquote, find themselves and well, let me, get on
1: with life. I, I'm getting a little tight on time. Let me, let me throw yep. something out at you there, because when, the, the graduation rate. Right. Uh, over 50 years ago, I was uh, hanging around with a guy from Pittsburgh who was actually playing for a major college program in the South. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came down to visit him, and I ended up living there for a while. When I walked in his dorm room, he had just come back with his books in a, in a shopping bag, and he threw them under a, a desk. Uh, uh-huh. Exactly three months later, I came back to the room to get – these guys were going to drive us to the airport so we could fly home. I looked across the room, and I saw the shopping bag hadn't moved. Okay, this is yeah. three, three months later. He graduated, yeah. and he made the dean's list. So I, 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 when I hear those graduation rates, I kind of oh, am a little suspicious.
3: Yeah. Oh, sure, and I don't. And listen, are, is it worth being critical of of what's taken place at certain areas? No yeah. question. All right, but to say that oh, we've suddenly turned this into pro ball. It's been pro ball for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think America, I think America and its fans, they love to view their college teams as those young men that represent their way of life versus the other school's way of life. State pride for state pride. That's the way we as fans and as human beings like to view the college game. I don't believe that's going to change one iota, regardless of whether these players stay at the school for three or four years or if they transfer four or five times. We've got some people that are playing in the aftermath of COVID in their seventh college football season, so a lot of things have changed. And are there pitfalls to it? Absolutely, there
1: are. Yeah. Well, hey, I'm, I got a little less than a minute to go here. Um, I got, I got thirty seconds. Okay, I, I'm just going to yeah. have to say thanks, uh, Tim, and uh, yeah. I'm up against a hard break. So I well, like to talk, talk you, again sometime.
3: You got it, John. And remember, as I would tell both, most of these writers. Vino said it best when he told Bowie Kuhn after the Iran hostages came back. How much I suffered enough?
1: (laughs) He's the man, and and that's the title of the book. Thanks, Tim. Take
3: care. Bye-bye. We'll be
1: back. Well, I've mentioned here a couple of times that I thought that uh, Justin Trudeau up there in Canada was a a girly man, and... (laughs) I uh I I don't want to see anybody have trouble with their marriage, but I was not gonna laugh at that, but I did I did see that he separated and uh from his wife of eighteen years last week and they're go- I, I guess they're gonna get a divorce. And so that was in the news and he's a big uh he's a big proponent of the transgender insanity. Um he's he's a uh you know, with the pronouns, the whole thing. He's he's really into it. And I just have always – there's something about him. He's just a – he's a sissy. I I don't know. There's something about him that annoys me. And um, so what do I (laughs) – what comes out this weekend? Uh, A picture of Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada, and his son, Xavier. And they are standing outside – I don't know where they are. I guess they're outside of a theater, each wearing pink and he tweeted this picture of himself and his son, Xavier. And it says, we are t- Team Barbie. This is the prime minister of Canada. Forget the fact that it's the, the, that movie, that any man who goes there should have, have transgender surgery like immediately following, as soon as they leave, there should be somebody waiting outside to take them away to be changed into a woman. But he... He, 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 it's him standing there with a big smile on his face. First of all, he's, he's the prime minister of Canada. What? He, he's standing, in, he's standing in front of a theater and he's grinning and talking about being part of a, of, of the, of the Barbie craze. I mean, it would be, it would be nauseating if he was out there in a, you know, dressed as Chewbacca or something. And, you know, after, after a star Trek movie, I mean a, uh, a Star Wars movie, that still is a, it just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that the prime minister of any country should be doing. Canada's a pretty, t- used to be, this is where they play hockey and guys get their teeth knocked out and they'll take a stick in the face and go in and get some stitches and come back out and play. Rick Talkett, remember Rick Talkett? He broke his jaw in the first period of a game. Left the ice. Boy, he's got a, he's, he looked like he really took a shot there. Hope he's okay. He came back in the third period with a special face mask. He played the third period with a broken jaw. That's the kind of guys that grow up in Canada, you at least used to. Now this guy's running the country. He shows up in a Barbie tribute shirt. He's part of Team Barbie. It's enough to make you want to puke. I'll talk to you tomorrow